Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, get them open to Mark chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, grace, and then the seat back in front of you, get to page 889. You'll be with us in Mark 3. I want to thank Grace and the team for leading us in worship this morning. And uh, go ahead and be in prayer for Brandon. He's got a team at uh, Twin Lakes right now with all the teenagers. They're at their winter camp and uh, have been there all weekend, and they'll be back uh, this evening. And um, we trust the Lord is uh, doing a pretty marvelous work for them there. Uh, but we're, we're going to turn our attention to Mark 3 and... Before I want to do, I want to extend an invite to you. First of all, if you're a group leader, you know this. We have our, our group leader training tonight at 6 o'clock. Um, but I want to extend that beyond them to anybody who's, who's in a group or has been praying about maybe potentially being a group leader. Maybe your group leader has, has approached you and said, I think you would make one, a good one of these sometime. Tonight would be a good night for you just to come and, and he, listen and observe and be a part of that. Um, that'll be at 6 o'clock tonight. If you, want to, if you want to be there, I'm inviting all of you, um, um, but anybody who... Uh, specifically, that would hit. Um, that would, this would be a, a beneficial evening for you. And um, and in, remember, in the back, uh, there's a new members uh, tr- uh, class. New members class. I don't know why I'm struggling to talk this morning. There's a new members class on on January 29th. It's two weeks from today. And if you want to know more about FBN and want to be a part uh, of this place at a deeper level, we'd love to have you sign up for that. And there's also a watch team orientation that's going to provide uh, an additional layer of just eyes, observance, uh, safety uh, to our Sunday mornings. And they have a training this Wednesday night. And so you'll find all that in the back in the bulletin. Uh, So please take note of that. And uh, and we'll just, I'll trust that you will follow up on those things. And I'm going to ask you uh, to turn our attention together to Mark 3 and ask you to join me in a word of prayer. So let's pray. God, we are so incredibly grateful uh, for the chance we have to open your word, um, to, for the chance we've already had to praise you um, and, and, and to worship you. And we know that, that you've, you've already met us in that. You promised that we're two or three gathered together. You're right there with us. And so we pray you bring that home now by, uh, by speaking through your word, by moving mightily through your spirit. That you, I pray that it would move unhindered through this place. Um, that we would respond uh, to whatever you reveal to us today and that you, God, would get the glory from all of it. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So I know we just wrapped up uh, the holiday season, and some of you aren't ready to think about Christmas again yet, uh, but I want to do just an exercise this morning where I want you to to imagine yourself as a child again. Okay, you're you're a child in in a pretty big family. You've got brothers and sisters, and it's Christmas morning, and you wake up, and you're all excited, and you you go, and you gather around the tree uh, with your family, and and you're pumped to open presents, and you watch as, as your parents hand a present to each one of your siblings, and they open one, and your anticipation grows that your turn's going to be next. But then they hand a second present to your brother or sister, and then a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and you're sitting there, and you haven't opened anything. And you begin to get nervous, and you think, well, maybe, you know, maybe they got me something really big this year, you know. These guys are just all open, and they're small ones. Maybe something huge is coming my way. And then you hear them, your parents say, last gift, and they hand it to one of your siblings. And you watch as they're all excited about their gifts and they're playing with their brand new toys and you're sitting there and you got nothing at all. And it's really, it's really kind of hard for me to paint that picture for you because that is what Christmas morning was like for me in the Parks household. 
Every year this happened. And what's worse is that my parents, they never even explained it, right? I think they just liked playing the mental games. Now, I'm, I need to tell you now it's a joke because I tried this in the first service and there was a lady that was just horrified. Like she almost started weeping. I was like, that's a joke, right? I, I'm just kidding. I, like my parents are not monsters, right? But I, but I made that joke. I told that hypothetical scenario because I wanted to point to a real one, okay? Where there's a feeling, a reaction that many of us in this room have been tempted to have or have had. And it's one of those feelings, one of those reactions that we would never tell anybody about. Right? We might not even admit it to ourselves because, because we'd be embarrassed to say that we feel this way. Or we likely know it's wrong to feel this way, but we can't help but feel it. And what I'm talking about is this. We're going through the book of Mark together as a church, right? We're in chapter 3 today, and the reason we're in chapter 3 is because we were in chapter 1 and 2 before that, and we've gone halfway through chapter 3. So we're not very far in the book, but we've already read about some really incredible things, haven't we? Where Jesus is showing up and he's changing people's lives in an instant. Fevers disappear. Demons are cast out. Lepers are healed. There are paralyzed people getting up and walking. These astounding and wondrous scenes. You add to it a rise, the rise in popularity of a, of a series like The Chosen where many people, including people in this room, are seeing these scenes acted out well, maybe for the first time in their life. It's a realistic picture of what this looked like. And it gives you this, this great image of Jesus' power and compassion and wonder. And then you take a look at your life. And you got chronic pain that just won't go away and there isn't a solution to Financial burdens that just keep weighing you down. Addictions that you just can't seem to shake. Problems that there just hasn't been a solution to. A, a wayward child you've prayed for for years and years and years. And you'd love nothing more than for Jesus just to wave his magical wand and in an instant all your problems are solved like you keep reading about. But it's not happening. You can start there and then build to comparison where you see somebody else whose life and whose influence and whose family or whose ministry just, just seems more successful than yours. Or others for whom it seems like God is blessing them immensely. Others for whom it seems like they, they live their lives appreciated and valued and cherished and cheered and loved and you don't always feel those things. And you're watching all this and even though you'd hate feeling it and you never admit it, you start to feel like the kid on Christmas that isn't getting a present when everyone else is. And maybe you're not quite there, but there's a more subtle way that we begin feeling distant from the Lord, where you just, you just lose your passion and you lose your excitement and zeal for God because you've heard all the sermons, you've done all the studies, you know all the important theology, and there's just nothing that surprises you anymore. It's all too familiar. And so you might not feel slighted or forgotten, but what's happened is you have forgotten just how amazingly and unbelievably good God has been to you. Today, I want us to look at Jesus changing the lives of some men. And these men didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. They did nothing to get this. And Jesus would give them something that all of us, uh, that many of us would envy, and, I, and maybe we even probably should. But what I don't want to do this morning is compare what he did in their lives to what he is doing in ours. What I want us to do is marvel at what he did in their lives and allow it to shine a light on what he does for us. And my goal today is quite simple, that we would leave this place uh, united in, our, in, the, in the fact that we are just blown away at just how good God has been to us. 
And so I'm going to invite Chris Mathis up to read today's passage. He's going to read in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. And if you are physically capable, would you please stand with him to honor the reading of God's word? Good morning. Put my glasses up here. Afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him, and they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. These are the 12 he chose, Simon, who he named Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed the sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Escarot, who later betrayed him. Thank you, Chris. All right, you guys can have a seat. As always, keep your Bibles open there, and any other verses we'll put on the screens for you. But that passage that Chris just read for you, there's a lot of names listed, right? And so rather than trying to break down each guy's story and what happened to them individually and what their backstory is, because a lot of them we don't even know, uh, I'd rather kind of pan back a little and let's just understand what Mark tells us just happened there. Right, he's been establishing for three chapters that, that Jesus, wherever he goes, that he has these crowds following him. Last week we looked at a verse, uh, verse 9 that says that they were, they were pressing forward, they might crush him, right? And he already has, in, in all these groups following him, he already has what, what could be defined as disciples. And so a little detail you might not have caught. Look at, look at Mark chapter 2 verse 15. Mark 2.15 tells us that while he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. Right? And so we see there that there's already, by chapter 2, there's already many people following Jesus, many people who are acting as if they are his disciples. Right? But here in Mark 3, what Jesus does is he withdraws, and he goes up on a mountain, and Luke 6 tells us that he prays all night. And then he summons 12 men chooses 12 out of this group and invites them to an inner circle. For you office fans, yes, there was an inner circle, all right? And he invites them to a deeper level of commitment. He invites them to a deeper level of following and learning. And verse 14 tells us what he was selecting them for, that he was selecting them to be his apostles. Now, the word apostle actually means one who is sent, And so we're going to see more of what their role is and how it plays out as we go through the book of Mark. And you can see this a lot in in later books in the New Testament, like the book of Acts. But first, what we need to see here is that just on a bigger scale, Jesus is continuing to build the kingdom of God. So if you have Mark open, I want you to look back at chapter 1 in verse 15. And if you have one of those Bibles that has the words of Jesus in red, you'll notice this is the first time Jesus speaks audibly in the book of Mark. Mark 1.15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Right, now these are the first recorded words of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. And so that is, that's Mark telling us, right, what Jesus' aim is right off the bat in his gospel. That Jesus has come to establish and build the kingdom of God. Now, to understand this idea of a kingdom is helpful to refer back to the Old Testament. Because what God did in the Old Testament was, was, a, was foreshadowing what he would do in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, God set apart the Israelites as his chosen people to build a nation and kingdom out of. 
And in the book of Genesis, we read of a guy named Jacob who God renames Israel. And Jacob, or Israel, had 12 sons. And from those 12 sons, he formed the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And those 12 tribes formed as the foundation. Now, the main purpose of Israel was that the Messiah would come through them. As God, when God decided to set these people apart from Abram's descendants, here's what he told Abram in Genesis chapter 12. He said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's a messianic promise, that all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That it would be through the Jewish people, through the Israelite nation, that God would send the Messiah. His son would be born in the line of David, and lo and behold, that's exactly how Jesus came. Now, this is why Jesus was so public and so overt and so open that he was building a new kingdom. Okay, because there was a misconception that the Jews had formed about the Messiah. They came to believe that the Messiah would be sent to bless Israel. That there would be a dominant earthly kingdom. Not that through the Messiah all the nations on earth would be blessed, but just Israel would be. But that's not what Jesus came for. Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom through which, as was promised in Genesis 12, all peoples on earth could be blessed. Revelation 7 gives us a picture of the fullness of this kingdom. Where John got a glimpse of heaven, and here's how he described it. He says, after this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from where? From every nation. Every tribe, every people, and every language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that is the kingdom that Jesus Christ came to establish. And so he's building a new nation. He's building a new kingdom that's open to all who would believe in him. And he chose 12 apostles, right? It's the same 12 number as the foundation of the old nation. The same, these 12 apostles will form the foundation of the new nation. Now, he chose these 12 for three awesome purposes. And Mark lets us know what they are. Now, we got to admit, this far in Mark, we haven't been told a lot about these guys. And for some of them, you need to know, you're not going to read much about them at all in the entire Bible. And there's one question. You can look through it. I'll just save you the time. There's one question the Bible never, ever answers, and it's this. Why did he choose these 12? Never even bothers to answer it. Because the reality is that anyone would be undeserving. But Mark does tell us here what Jesus chose them for. And he lists three, three distinct purposes, and they're all great. And the first one he says in verse 14 is that he chose them, he set them apart to be with him. Now, that's a simple phrase, isn't it? But it's powerful. He was giving these 12 access that others would not have. Right? They would get to travel with Jesus. They would get to talk to Jesus. They would get to eat with Jesus. They would get to be with Jesus. They would go where he goes. They would see what he does. They would hear what he taught. They would observe him closely, see what he modeled, learn from him, and just experience him. I cannot state enough for you how immense a privilege this was. God literally came to earth in human form, and these 12 guys got the most unbroken access to him. Can I tell you the single most exciting thing about heaven to me? will be seeing Jesus. We've seen the one that I've believed in, the one that I've prayed to, the one that I've trusted in, the one I've served my entire life, but never got to see him face to face. I'm more excited about that in heaven than anything else. And these guys got unbroken access to it. Secondly, he chose them so that he could send them out to preach. That's what Mark tells us in verse uh, 14. 
It's why the word apostle means to one who sinned. They weren't just supposed to learn from him, you see. They weren't, they weren't just supposed to watch his example. They were then put into action what it is they learned. They were then to live out what it is they saw. And this is the beginning of the model of the entire kingdom of God that, that has been built upon, right? That, that, that what you have learned, what you've received from others and received from the Lord, you then invest in others who will then share that and pass it along and they can receive it and then, and then share it and pass it along. Right? It went from Jesus to the 12, to the early apostles, to the early church leaders, and now we read this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul tells Timothy, what you've heard from me and the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is the model. This is the design of God's kingdom. Can you imagine going through the rigors of something like medical school and then never practicing medicine? Can you imagine going through the time of learning a skill and never actually using it? Imagine as a child being sent constantly to really intense golf or tennis lessons and then never playing golf or tennis. It doesn't make sense, does it? But the kingdom of God is built upon modeling and multiplying that we take what it is we've received from the Lord and what it is we've received from his people and we put that into action and invest it into others and then, and then they do the same. That model started right here with these 12 that were chosen for this role. That they would, they would not just be with him, they would go out and preach and share what they learned. And thirdly, in verse 15, it says he chose them to have authority. Now Mark specifically mentions that they were given authority to drive out demons. Now elsewhere, Jesus himself will mention that he gives them authority to heal, that he gives them authority to teach, and he gives them authority to lead the church. Because after Jesus' ascension, if there wasn't a plan in place, there would be a leadership vacuum. But Jesus foresaw this, and he gave his authority, gave that authority to the apostles. And I want you to know the early church noticed this and responded to this as well. Acts chapter 2, this is talking about the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Do you see the reverence they gave them? They were devoted to these guys' these guys' teaching. Because they had borrowed authority from Jesus Christ. You see, without having the full revelation of God's word that we have sitting in our laps this morning, there would need to be something to validate their ministry. There would need to be something to validate their teaching. And so Jesus gave these guys authority to do things that you and I won't ever be able to do. And it wasn't because they were more special than us. It was to give validity to their teachings when they shared what Jesus taught them. And so he calls them out, he sets them apart, one, to be with him, two, to go out and teach what they had heard, and three, to give them authority. And this, this idea, this role would be a tremendous honor for these men. And let's be clear, they didn't earn it. Okay, there wasn't some disciple school, right, where they graduated the top 12 in their class, right? They didn't, they didn't go through some sort of first century reality show where they competed and they, and they beat everyone else. They did not deserve these roles. And if you don't trust me on that, just stay with us as we go through Mark. You'll see it clearly. There's nothing that they did in and of themselves to get this honor, and yet Jesus chose them. And he gives them this honor freely. And they would see things that no one else has ever seen. And they will hear things that will make their hearts beat out of their chest. And they will experience God working through them in unique and specific and amazing ways. Their lives will never, ever be the same. There is nothing. It might just read as a paragraph to you. But trust me, there is nothing that ever happened to them that would be more uh, powerful, bigger, more impactful, more meaningful than being chosen by Jesus to be his apostle. 
And there had to be multiple times where they thought, why in the world did he pick me? Now, a lot of times we Christians don't know what to do with these guys. Because with Jesus, it's a whole lot simpler. And here's what I mean by that. He's God and I'm not. Right? So there's all kinds of things that he can do that I can't do. That's not, it's not even hard for me to wrap my mind around that. But, but these guys, these guys are sinners. Right? They fail repeatedly. We read about it. We see them fail. We see them fight among themselves. We see them have impure motives. We see them want the wrong things. We see them abandon Jesus when the going gets hard. We see, we see them deny Jesus. We want them to betray him. Very often they get things wrong. And yet... We go to the book of Acts and we read how the remaining, they're, they're healing people. They're performing these amazing miracles. They're, when they speak, thousands are coming to faith. And that's when we become much more tempted to play the comparison game. Because I mean, if they as sinners have those experiences, can I? And if you say I can't, then are you saying that God can't do that and he can't use me? I just really want to caution you against that this morning. In fact, what I'd like to do is steer you away from all comparison altogether. In John 21, Jesus gives Peter a clear calling for his life. He's, he's restoring Peter after Peter's huge failing, and he gives him a very clear picture of what Peter's going to do for the rest of the days and how Peter's going to die. And after receiving this, you know what one of Peter's first question is? Well, what are you going to do with John? And Jesus gets incredulous and says, what in the world is that to you? I just told you what to do. Like, don't worry about what I'm going to do with John. He's telling him, don't, don't concern yourself with what I'm going to do in the lives of others. I'm going to lead you in the ways that I want you to go. You see, comparison is one of the most effective ways to kill contentment in your life. Comparison is a great way to crucify joy. And so I don't want us to get dragged down into that today. But I do want us to ask, right, what, what is the relevance of all this to today? And just to clear it up real quick, right? If you're wondering, well, can I be like an apostle? I'm sorry, that's a hard no. Revelation 21 says there's going to be 12 names on the 12 walls of God's eternal city. Those 12 names will be the names of the apostles. Brett Parks won't be on there. My shadow has never healed anyone. I've put someone to sleep with a sermon, right? But if they had fallen out of a window and died, they would have stayed dead. I couldn't have walked downstairs and healed them, right? I've never told a paralyzed person to walk and they did. It's just the reality. God has the right to call specific people at specific times to specific purposes for his own good reasons. And it's okay to recognize the unique role in church history that these guys had. We don't need to covet it because God has been so good to us. In addition, I've got the Holy Spirit. I've got the full, full revelation of God's word. They did not, right? I experienced electricity and indoor plumbing and air conditioning. So it's not like the trade was terrible for me, Okay. The real question I want to ask is this. What is Jesus still doing? If if we're going to agree that there are aspects of apostleship that these guys were chosen for that were just for them, what in their story is still happening today? And the first is obvious, that Jesus Christ is still building his kingdom. He has not stopped. He could have, by the way, but he hasn't. And if you have been saved and redeemed by Jesus, if you belong to him this morning, there's a verse in the Bible I think you should be incredibly thankful for. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You know the promise that Peter's talking about there? 
It's a promise that God will bring the end of times, right? That God could have brought the end when all evil is vanquished and all wrongs are made right. And, and on that day, the chance to repent, the chance to be saved will be over. And the Bible is telling us that God has been so incredibly patient holding back on that day and he's waited long enough that if you're in Jesus Christ, he waited long enough for you to come to him. He's remained patient to this moment. That everybody who gave their lives to Jesus yesterday all across the globe, he waited long enough for them to come. He's still drawing people to himself. Right? His hope and his truth and his gospel are going all out over the world. He's still raising up people to be sent and to go and to share this good news. What he started in sending his son, what he continued by selecting the 12, has spread to every continent of our globe, and he continues to build his kingdom and save souls. In fact, if you're here and you don't know him, he might be drawing you to himself right now. It might be the very reason you're here this morning, so that you can understand your need. That you are a sinner that has rejected his design and and left to yourself. You will die in your sins, and if those sins haven't been paid for, you will go to hell. But Jesus Christ came, and he died on a cross to pay your price if you believe in him. And he rose again to offer you eternal life in heaven. And he's building his kingdom one soul at a time through those that place their faith in in Jesus to save them. Is he drawing you in today? If so, all you have to do is believe in him, and he will save you. Jesus is still building his kingdom. Secondly, he's still calling us. Man, I want you to imagine the excitement, right? If you didn't know what all meant, the excitement if you were one of the 12 when your name was called and you were summoned up the mountain. Do you know God places very specific calls on you the same way? 2 Timothy chapter 1, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our, our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Do you catch what that verse is saying? That Jesus saved us, right, us who belong to him, and he's called us. Yes, he called us. And he, he didn't call us because, of, because we earned anything. He didn't call us based on anything that we'd done. Remember how the apostles had done absolutely nothing to earn this role? It's the same for us. We've done nothing to earn our salvation. God does not owe us anything, and yet he saves us, and he chooses us, and he calls us to himself, and it's according to his purpose and his grace. It's his plan for our lives. And so what this means is this. If you're in Jesus Christ, this is your story. That God shaped and formed and created and he placed you and me. And our response to that was to reject him. Our response to that was to be selfish and prideful and decide that we knew better than he did. So we ignored his designs and we followed our desires and feelings more than his commands and we just simply lived in rebellion against him. And do you know how the holy God of the universe responded to that? He pursued us. He came and took on our form and he lived this in this life that we have not and could not. And he went to a cross where he was whipped brutally and nailed and suffered immensely and he died not for anything that he had done but because of our rebellion. To pay the price that we owed. And then he reveals our need to us where he places people in our lives to point us to him. He gives us his word. He draws us to himself and he saves our soul, sparing us from death and hell forever. And instead he promises us perfect eternal life with him in heaven. And that would be enough, but he goes beyond that and he equips us and gives us experiences and talents and spiritual gifts and he calls us to himself to serve him in unique ways that he set up just for us. 
It's what Ephesians 2 says, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. You see, you lay that all out and you see it rightly, and that's when you quickly realize there's no need for me to feel slighted. There's no need for me to feel gypped in the kingdom of God. I should be in awe. I should be in awe that there's not a thing that I've received from God that I deserve. There's not a thing that I've earned. In fact, what I have earned and what I do deserve, he's graciously withheld from me. And what he didn't say was he reached down and he pulled me out of the miry clay and he set my feet on the rock. He removed my heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh and he made him who knew no sin to be sin for me so that I might be the righteousness of God. I mean, that's astounding. And there's really only one right way to respond to that, which is just to be in awe of God. You see, there's a way to know whether we're getting things right or not. If you, if you go through this life consistently being blown away and astounded by just how good God has been to you in Jesus Christ, you're getting it right. We're getting it right as a church if, we're, if what we do is we point your attention and your affection back to Jesus, helping you be in awe of him. If we're doing that, we're getting it right. Because when my mindset is that he did that for me of all people, you realize how much that opens up a much richer way to live? That all, it motivates everything that we do and say. It inspires us to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. It is the reason that we desire what we desire. It's the reason why we treat people the way that we treat them. It shapes what we pursue and spend money on. It lifts us out of discouragement. It lifts us out of despair and makes us more patient and more tender and more gracious with others. And it prepares us to say yes to cost, to say yes to serving, to say yes to stretching, to say yes to sacrifice, to say yes to those things that he prepared in advance for us to do. And it's all because we cannot get over just how good God has been to us. And so we're going to try to get it right this morning. We're going to close the service by giving you some time just to be still and reflect and ponder and pray and just remind yourself that our good and holy and perfect and awesome God really does love you like that. That he really has been that good and gracious and amazing to you. And if you've, if you've felt stagnant recently, if you felt unexcited, if you felt like you're going through the motions or detached emotionally or maybe even slighted by God, I'm going to encourage you to ask him just to rekindle your excitement and passion and all for him and his grace this morning. If you've never believed in Jesus for the first time, then I'm going to, I'm going to plead with you to believe in him now and to ask him to save you and forgive you. And I promise you he will. For most of us, right, the main goal of this moment is for your thoughts just to be focused on how good God has been to you. And so I'm going to pray, and then there's going to be a song played that you can watch the lyrics, or you can just take a quiet moment to be with the Lord. But, but all I want you thinking about is how good he's been to you. Let's pray. Father, the very definition of grace is unmerited favor. And Lord, you've showed it to me again and again and again and again. And God, I apologize for any time that I felt like, this, like these truths got familiar. For any time that my faith felt stagnant. Any time I felt even slighted in some way. In response to just how amazing you've been to me.
And Lord, I pray if there's anybody in this room who's never believed in Jesus Christ, that this would be their moment of salvation, that right now they would surrender their life to you, they would believe and ask you to forgive them and save them. And Lord, for those of us who've done that, regardless of how we came in this room, would we, would we take this moment for the privilege and opportunity it is and just reflect on how tremendously, amazingly good you've been to us. Speak, move around this room however you see fit. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.